The following message is entitled, Proven Faith, Fired Up Faith, Part 2. This message was given during the evening service on February 5th, 2023, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. We're looking in 1 Peter chapter 1, continuing our study, an in-depth study, as the entire epistle really is, of joy in the midst of suffering, as an evidence, one of the uh, major wills of God that the Bible speaks of. There are eight wills of God, if you're interested in writing them down. I've given you plenty of blank lines there, or you could use a napkin that's in your pocket. Major passages that speak to the will of God, and this is one of them right here. God's will is that you suffer for the faith. You can also add to this one 1 Peter 3.17 and 1 Peter 4.19. This is the first one and the major one that Peter is dealing with in this epistle. God's will is that you suffer for the faith with joy. That's number one. Of course, before that, God's will is that you get saved. That's talked about in 2 Peter 3.9. God's will is that we are to come to faith in Christ. That comes first, obviously, before suffering for the faith. You can't suffer for the faith if you're not saved. You being anyone, not referring to you specifically here in the auditorium or listening on the recording. Number three, God's will in the Bible is that we are to be spirit-filled. That's pointed out quite plainly in Ephesians 5.17. We are called to be spirit-filled, so saved, suffering, spirit-filled. And what that means, you can't do something unless it's defined. And I was bringing that to light to the two uh, ladies that came to Christ on Friday. I said, can we call someone a chef if they don't know how to cook? And they said, no. I said, can you call someone a mechanic who doesn't know how to fix cars? And they said, no. I said, no, you're wrong. Everyone on the east side claims to be a mechanic. No, I I said, correct. Um, And so um, people are under the mistaken idea that they know everything (laughs) and that they can be saved without knowing what it means to be born again. So terms have to be defined. So with this number three, you can't be spirit-filled if you don't know what it is. This is fundamental. Knowledge is the key to holiness. Number four, uh, God's will is that you are to be sanctified, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 4. These are passages that talk about the will of God. God's will is that you become sanctified, saved, suffering, spirit-filled, sanctified. Number five, in the New Testament, God's will is that you become submissive to authority. There's a total rebellion going on in the Christian church today, saying we don't need to submit to our leaders because they're not moral, and if they're not moral, you don't need to submit to them, which is incredibly delusional, sad to say, because what moral, what leaders, unsaved leaders ever in world history were moral. So that's ridiculous. Certainly in Romans 13, when Paul was saying, submit to your pagan Roman leaders, they weren't moral. Anyways, so that's 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 15. God's will is that we're to be submissive to authority. Saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, suffering. Um, I don't know what number I'm on. Six, okay, thank you very much. God's will is that you serve the Lord with your gifts. Uh, Romans 12, 1 to 3 says that. Serve with your gifts. Number six, um, again, 1 Corinthians 12, 11 tells us that, Ephesians 1, 11. Number seven, uh, God's will is that you are to be thankful. I use the yes word satisfied. 
continuously thankful for Thessalonians 5.18. That is God's will for us. And number eight, as I've said many times before, I worked long and hard to get an S word for number eight. God's will is that you have wisdom, seek wisdom, and I use the word sophied. <laughs> this is absolutely ridiculous, but it's the Latin for the word wisdom, Sophia. And uh, so that's number eight. Um, there's a host of passages that speak to this is God's will. Uh, Proverbs 1, Hosea 14, some other passages. So to review in the order on this sheet, you're to be saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, suffering, serving with your gifts, thankful or satisfied, and so feed. Did anyone miss any of those that's writing them down? Did anyone miss at least one reference? You didn't get at least one reference for any of those. Who? First Peter 2, verses 13 to 15. Romans 12, 1 to 3. Close, but no cigar. I have cigars up here if you'd like one. Don't know where that aphorism in our country has ever come from, close but no cigar. But you can bet tonight when I'm home, I will Google that. I must find out where that pithy little statement comes from. So here is the uh, one in my list here is suffering is number five. There's no order to these other than salvation has to come first. But obviously, this is the number one priority the Spirit gave to this epistle. Uh, this is what proves faith, as chapter 1, verse 6, is greatly rejoicing while suffering. And then verse 7 says, this is the proof of our faith. The dokimads, a major test that we are saved. Let's follow the outline. Much more shortened than it was before in previous sermon note sheets. Uh, Roman numeral 1, Christians are to be joyful despite trials. We're in Roman numeral number 2, verse 7. Christians are to be joyful while suffering for Christ as proof of saving faith. Then letter A underneath that, joy while suffering for Christ is the proof of saving faith, not the only one, but a supreme one, in order that the proof, singular, verse 7, of your faith. So it's not saying one of the proofs, but it says the proof. This is a major one of the New Testament. One that in, in mass, wholesale, has been rejected by the American and Western civilization free, economically free, and uh, governmentally free countries have rejected and the church systems have as well. Letter B, the nature of proven faith is where we are currently. We've already seen extensively proven faith is more precious than perishing gold. In verse 7, being more precious than gold, which is perishable. And now we are in the midst of the second aspect of verse 7, which I filled in for you, proven faith will be continuously tested by fire. If we didn't like the fact that in order to have assurance of salvation, I must be suffering with joy, this only gets worse, as I mentioned last Sunday night. It's not just that it proves and its value is better than gold, earthly gold, but even more sobering is this faith is tested by fire. So when it says, even though tested by fire, the assumed subject of that statement in verse 7, even though tested by fire, is proven faith. Proven faith. Not faith, but proven faith. 
And last Sunday night, we were in the midst of looking at this very important contrasting statement, concessive participle technically in the Greek, even though it's just the two-letter participle, uh, particle or participle day, D-E, even though it's defined as. It's a contrast. So it's more precious than gold, but... In contrast to that, as we're saying, yippee, my, my proven faith is more precious than gold. It's so valuable, yippee. Then all of a sudden, boom, the Spirit of God throws in this concessive participle, day, and says, you're going to be fired. So this is a good firing, not for some of you who will be fired tomorrow on the job. That's not a good firing. So the title is obviously Proven Faith, Fired Up Faith. This is part two, the sermon title says in your note sheet. Just to refresh your memory, gold and faith are fired. Gold gets better when it's put under heat, and so does proven faith. So just when you thought that you had enough suffering from God, he fires you. Fires you up more and more. He alone knows how much we can take. So it's best not to instruct God and tell him you've had enough. Or that it's too much. That's accusing God of being an idiot. When we say, I've had too much, God, please. It's too much. I've had enough. Oh, okay. I'm so sorry, God could say back. I didn't realize that. I was kind of ignoring you for a while. So, my mistake. We don't want to talk like that to God. He's infinitely knowledgeable and wise. We're nothing. He knows exactly what it's what, what, we're, what he's doing. So under that letter A, just remind yourself from last Sunday night, it's best not to instruct God when you're under the heat of trials. Best not to do that. And many times we instruct him by whining. Why? Why is not a bad question if it's curiosity. Why does this verse say what it does? That's good. But why? The why of doubt and disrespect. Uh, when um, a child is asked to clean the room and the child says back with a furrowed brow, why? That's rebellion. So best not to do that with God. He doesn't have to tell us why we're under suffering. Just the reality of the scriptures and here in our text in our series is that you're going to. So either accept it or don't. And if you don't accept it, you can't grow. And if you're not growing, you're not going to have assurance of salvation. And your faith is not proven. You cannot possibly have assurance of salvation if your faith is not proven. And it's proven when you have joy in the midst of suffering, not whining, not complaining. So even though it hints at the idea that uh, we would naturally assume that we've had enough, but more fires are coming. Please write that under letter A. Then again, by way of review, more fires are coming. The fires aren't meant to destroy us. We think they are when we're not mature. The fires are meant to purify. Tested by fire. So if we're truly saved and have proven faith, the purifying fires of suffering are meant only for True proven faith believers to grow more. Letter B in our note sheet, new tonight, is tested. Even though we've covered now, we're taking it word by word, phrase by phrase in verse 7. The next word is tested. And again, it's our word proven. Back earlier, if you look earlier in the verse, it says, so that the proof of your faith, tested and proof, are forms of the same root. Dakimadzo. Uh, this is a present passive participle. We are passive to the testing. It occurs on us. It happens to us. It is continuous. Testing is continuous. It's durative. The technical word grammatically is this is duration. Um, Greek verbs, participles that operate as verbs, 
operate more on issues of duration rather than time. Time certainly is a factor in verbs and participles, but it is duration. It is kind of time. And so present participle here tells us that this is going to be a continuous state of affairs. So earlier on, uh, what we have with proven faith is we have proof is a noun and tested is a verb. Participle acting is a verb. So we're going to get pounded. Dakimazo means to be tested, grilled, judged, pounded, fired by fire, tested by fire. This is the appointment we have. And again, we're supposed to tell true believers. So didn't really have much time to talk about that. We were so concerned about uh, Jalima and I dealing with those two ladies on the essence of salvation. And one of them was going under some diabetic fatigue. So we had to stop. But part of her process, which she's already aware of in discipleship, is to count the cost and point out to them that... Uh, these ladies, when she has a chance in the future, if they allow her to disciple them, is that um, you're in for trouble. We alluded to that a little bit to them, but I don't think uh, unbelievers understand the extent to which they've joined a different army. And they've gone from being friends of the world to enemies of the world, and the world does not like that. And the world loves to masquerade and mimic and likes to pretend, and the world does not like our brand of... Uh, Christianity. It does not like the biblical Christianity of suffering with joy for the Lord Jesus Christ. I uh, came across a video this week uh, that I watched on YouTube of uh, Kevin Costner, the actor, and he was years ago when Whitney Houston died from drug overdose, the singer. He spoke, uh, kind of preached at the funeral of Whitney Houston in her Baptist church that she grew up in. Uh, interestingly, both Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston uh, grew up in Bible-believing fundamental Baptist churches, and they obviously rejected that with the lives that they've been living. Uh, he had a twisted view of what Christianity is. Uh, Christianity is basically twofold in this uh, fascinating, he could have been a good preacher as far as, far as how he communicates. Uh, of course, communication style is part of his acting. But uh, he basically had two views of his own Christianity. Number one is there's no wrong, we just make mistakes. Uh, Whitney Houston's drug overdose was an unfortunate mistake, like tripping over the vacuum cord and falling to the ground. Uh, that's number one. Uh, number two, his takeaway from his fundamentalist Bible Baptist upbringing, Kevin Costner, was that... Uh, that the goal of turning to Christ is to alleviate pain and since that's the goal, then there is no hell because God is not a God of, is not a pain inflictor. Are you understanding that? Kevin Costner made it quite plain that God is there to alleviate. So even though she trashed her own life, uh, lived in despair and fear tragically all her life, never really trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, um, these are mistakes that she made that ended up her mistakes cost her her life. And then Kevin uh, expounded his theology by saying, so God realized that her pain needed to end. And his last few words in this video, which was transfixing for me because it gives me such a, a play on the culture of what people live for today. His last words were, now the pain's over. See, heaven is where everyone goes to have the alleviation of pain. And now, unhindered by drug addiction, she can sing to God the rest of her eternity. This is 
his view. Definitely not taught in the two Baptist churches that these individuals have grown up with. This is the culture of Christianity that claims to be Bible-believing. It's not. This is extremely deadly thinking to get into the idea that Jesus is our tremendous fixer. I was in 7-Eleven the other day, there's a surprise, and uh, the young guy behind me, uh, behind the counter, is he was, I was paying for my uh, small little drink, um, he was uh, bemoaning the fact that he didn't have anywhere to get his, his uh, alternator put on. He had an alternator, so I said, aha, I can steer you to someone for that. And I steered him to someone because, of course, I work at Skyway. Um, life is about problems being alleviated. This is the unsaved mentality. When I told him where to go, I said, "Don't." It's the place looks like a slum, but um, this actually I directed him to the slum place across from Walgreens. But what was I to do? They all look like slums. So, anyways, there's actually a born again Christian in that shop, which is kind of interesting. Two Sergios. One owns it, and one is a, he's a born again Christian. I've talked to him extensively. He even is a born again Christian who believes in the rapture. That's so. Ask for Sergio the Rapture, Sergio. <laughs> if you want to take your car somewhere, go over there. And, uh, but my point is that we have a problem that's got to be fixed, got a problem that's got to be fixed, got a problem. And I'm happy when the fix occurs, right? This is it. We have to alleviate pain. But see, testing there is counterintuitive. What that means is that it goes against common sense. We would think society is really giving us common sense. The goal here is to raise ourselves up, be better, find more comfort, more money, alleviate problems. This is not the message of biblical Christianity. Well, golly, no wonder the culture rejects the gospel if we tell them plain up what it's all about. But if we want, if we want to live for the Lord and have assurance of salvation, we have to submit to this will of God. That God doesn't always fix all the alternators. And no, this when we do evil and we die for it, it is not a mistake. And no, God does not fix all humans' problems and all their wickedness by bringing them to heaven so they can sing their songs to Jesus. This is made-up religion. Tragically. We're going to be tested by fire. That's next in your note sheet. By fire. My, I gave you plenty of blank lines on that one, didn't I? I fell asleep as I was hitting the paste button. No, there's actually a reason for the, my madness there. Let's follow this. This is the agent God uses to test our faith. Fire. Isn't that incredible? Um, fire burns. Let's get very simple on this. Write it down. If you're overwhelmed by the complexity of my sermonic outline in a note sheet this morning, good news. This is simple. Tonight, fire burns. Anybody want that exegeted? Shall we do a side series on fire? Fire burns. Fire, as I mentioned last Sunday night, is used for basically two things. Eternal judgment, the fires of hell, or fire purifies in this world as far as spiritually for believers. Some have said because fire has a purifying agent that the hell's, hell's fires purify the lost. Hell can't purify unbelievers. Only Jesus Christ can do that. 
The folly of that is astounding. I've read theologians that have said that. Well, when I go to hell, you know, I don't believe in the eternity of hell. Why would God send someone to hell forever for a limited number of sins? This is the argument. If I commit ten sins, why would I go to hell forever? Or if I commit one sin in James 2, why would I go to hell forever? You go to hell forever because you rejected Jesus Christ. And after you die, there's no hope of being saved. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing good in hell. Where, where does the good come from? Even though Jesus Christ created hell and he's Lord over it, he's not there. And he's not listening. So the fires of hell aren't purifying. It doesn't purify. This is the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. You're a bad boy and a bad girl and you've done wrong. We'll burn off that by, uh, you have to write, uh, I'm a bad boy on the purgatory chalkboard for 25 years or something. And then God will release you from that in-between prison. This is what happens when unbelievers pretend to be Christians and try to write rules that are not in the Bible. Kevin Costner's included. The arrogance of a man who thinks, after he rejected his Baptist upbringings, thinks that he knows and can talk for God at a funeral is astounding to me. What a read on paganism with some tossed-in seasoning of Christianity as one sees fit. Fire burns. It is not destructive in this life. It's destructive in the next if I'm not saved. So please write this down. The fire doesn't destroy a believer. If that believer is walking with God, the fire, if it's a true believer, will enhance the faith. It's meant to drive us closer to the Lord. Bring us under the conviction of sin. There's no way around this. This is a major word for suffering, fire. God doesn't make any excuses. We tend to do that. We're carnal. You can be witnessing to an unbeliever. They're talking about, I don't believe in a God who judges. Uh, do you believe that? Do you believe, John, that God judges and sends people to hell and we can feel ashamed or embarrassed? I just want to walk them into the door of salvation. Then I'll tell them the bad news after. So I believe Jesus saves you from hell. You know. Yeah, the hell's is a terrible place. But uh, I want you to focus on his love, and even though there is a hell, I just want you to know that uh, Jesus loves you. There's no equivocation here. This is unequivocal. No, no hemming and hawing, as my mom used to say. Obey, John, no hemming and hawing. I didn't know what that meant ever, hemming and hawing, but I know that it was bad. It's uh, equivocation. It's, it's swinging like a tennis court back and forth. The Bible doesn't do that. Look at it. Tested by fire, boom. Accept it or don't. It's so harsh. God wrote it. Don't shoot the messenger. You're going to get fired. Continuously. If you're a true believer. And the more you are, the more you grow. And the more you grow, the more assurance you have. You know, this idea that we should never, ever have any assurance of salvation is false. That's false teaching. Look at 1 John 4. It's not spiritual to say, well, I don't know if I'm going to heaven. That's a sign that one's in rebellion. You do understand that, right, all of us? If, if I'm not sure if I'm going to heaven, then there's something wrong spiritually with me. 1 John 4 tells us that assurance is for the godly, and if I don't have assurance, then I'm not godly. That's very simple. 1 John 4, verse 17. Uh, this love is perfected, made complete. Okay? God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God. So abiding in God means you're loving continuously. God and loving others. Verse 16, 1 John 4, 16. 
And when love is complete, you're loving God continuously and you're loving others, the lost with the gospel, living the Christian life before them, and loving in the church, serving with our gifts, uh, unconditionally loving each other no matter how bad we are to each other, no resentments, no buildup of gossip or slander. We speak truth to each other in love, as Ephesians 4 says. And when that's growing, that love behavior up towards God and with each other, what happens? Result clause in verse 17. So that we may have assurance. Confidence is assurance. It doesn't give you salvation. It gives you confidence or assurance. In the day of what? Judgment. And, of course, fear and love don't go hand in hand. So a person who lives in fear of life and circumstances doesn't love in verse 18. So John is telling us in verse 18... A major numeral uno, uno means one, right? Okay, I don't know why I did that. Uh, the number one sin that shipwrecks love in verse 18 is what? Living in fear. In other words, I fear God, I don't love him, he's unreliable, I fear my circumstances, I'm not in, God's not in control. Love requires trust. Uh, love and faith go together. I trust God. I love him. If I'm living in fear, then I don't trust him and I don't love him. And if I don't love him, then what? Fear involves what in verse 18? Punishment, I lose my assurance of salvation. It's a major way to lose assurance. A person who's living in fear is living in a rebellion and believes that they're always under punishment. The one who fears is not perfected in love. So it's impossible to be a loving, fearful believer. Absolutely impossible. Okay, so back to 1 Peter 1. So when we want to grow, we want to grow in love, not fear. That's one example in 1 John 4. And then I'll have assurance. And that requires from the divine physician, Jesus Christ, that requires being fired up, tested with continuous flames. And what happens is, is I have joy in the midst of suffering for Christ. That gives me assurance. The more I'm tested, it doesn't destroy my faith. It proves it. It helps it to be more sure. If we cannot accept the testing agent as the primary way for the Lord to work and deal with our lives, then we will never have proven faith. Never. That means we'll never grow. That means we'll never know for sure whether we're saved or not. And it is not spiritual to live in a continuous state of lack of assurance. Catholics will tell you, oh, nobody can be sure of their salvation. That's not the doctrine of the Bible. The doctrine of the Bible is born-again Christians who are godly will have assurance. Godliness produces assurance. That's the, that's the realm we want to walk in is assurance. If I'm constantly doubting my salvation, there is something seriously wrong with us. We're supposed to get past that where we're consistently living the Christian life in faith to the point where we are then assured we're going to heaven. Who wants to put their head down on the bed every night as a believer and not know if you died in your sleep whether you're going to hell or not? What a horrible thing. Think God means us to live that way? Terrorized? Well, I don't know if I die tonight. I don't know if I'm going to end up in the eternal fires. I could wake up falling in hell. Oh, well. It's the way we all are. No, it is not. If we're perfected in Christ, perfected in faith and growing in love, then we're going to have assurance. If we have assurance while living in sin, we're unbelievers. That's false assurance. 
Spirit of God strips us of assurance as a chastising agent to return us to walking in godliness so that we'll, then we'll have assurance again. So our proven faith is constantly tested. We simply can't be sure that our faith is real in a context of comfort and ease. Write it down under fire. Comfort and ease is not fire. Comfort and ease is not fire. That's another simple principle. Fire burns. It's not comfort and ease. We push ourselves towards comfort and ease. We want problems alleviated. Problems alleviated do not give us assurance. Tested by fire does. The faith that cannot endure under testing by fire cannot claim to be genuine. That's why quitting on God or on his church when we're under fire of suffering shows a believer there's not much to that person's faith. How many people have I seen walk out the door of this church never to return? Ticked off, usually ticked off at me or ticked off at somebody in the church. I've had it, I'm leaving. And I think to myself, what do they think? That they were going to run into utopia in church? I thought this was sinners that get together here. We're all messed up and bad. Paul in, first, in Romans 7 said he's, the very thing I don't want to do, I do. If he's that way, then so are we. He calls himself the chief of sinners. So, you know, I've always scratched my head. Someone's walking out the door. and Bye, I'm never coming back again. Wow. Whew. Don't know if that person's saved. The minute they run into trouble, they run. They quit. Quit serving. Quit fellowshipping. What's the deal with that? How is that ever being tested by fire? Part of the testing we have is when you stand for Christ in any local church, carnal believers are going to nail you. We clear on that? There's no utopian church out there. So if you live for Jesus Christ in a local church, you're going to catch it. You're going to catch it from others in the church that claim to be Christians who aren't living the way they should be. And they don't like you, so they nail you. My goodness, if we all quit under that rule, then what happens? Oh, that's right. Churches close. That's what happens. Fire is meant to purify. Look at an interesting pass passage in Isaiah 1 about fire burning and purifying. So... Actually, to suffer under carnal believers in a local church, that's a fire situation, isn't it? So if it's a fire situation, it's there for you and I to help us to grow, right? Okay, so that's a good thing, right? It's not good that people are carnal, but you're always going to have them at churches. So that can actually be turned into a win. You're fired being persecuted in churches by fake believers or carnal believers and you endure and toughen up and continue to serve the Lord and with joy before the Lord, not joy over carnality. Wow, that gives you assurance. It gives you assurance and you can say, wow, I'm living in a situation where I serve in a local church where there's really bad stuff going on and God is enabling me privately in my heart to have upliftment before the Lord for my salvation and to continue to persevere under the suffering, that convinces me that I'm a believer. That's a win. Isaiah chapter 1. My goodness, God really starts off the warfare through the Isaiah prophet with a, a real slam dunk. Oh my goodness, this is some really strong words that God has to say for Israel. Basically, it's like this. You good-for-nothing wretches who claim to be believers, you're all apostates. How do you like that? 
And it would be like if I started a sermon off that way. <laughs> kind of, you good for nothing, wretches, you're all apostates. Okay, well, God has the right to do that. We can't see the heart, right? Okay, look at verse 21. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if I can even read the first half of verse 21 of Isaiah 1. Look at that. I mean, talk about no equivocation there. How the faithful city has become a whore! Wow! My goodness. Does God talk straight? Harlot's a whore, by the way. She who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Don't, by the way, compare this to the U.S. This is not a passage I've heard Christian leaders quote some of these verses for the United States. No, we're not the faithful city, okay? Even when Irishmen were busting heads in the city to maintain law and order 80 years ago as police officers, we weren't a faithful city. The faithful city is Jerusalem, okay? Verse 22, your silver has become dross, so everything's corrupted with the scourings of the silver. Your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe. You say, everyone, really, Jesus, are you, or God, are you, Holy Spirit, are you exaggerating there? Well, I think when God, the Spirit, says everyone, he means pretty bad. Chases after rewards. They do not to defend the orphan nor the widow's plea come before them. You say, well, the U.S. looks like this. Yeah, that's because any time either the Jews apostatize or Christians become rebels or humanity that is unsaved is pagan, they all look the same. Okay. Verse 24, Therefore the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. And that, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, is where your reformed brothers and sisters, so-called, stop in their assessment of this chapter. At the end of verse 24, God has cast them off, Israel. That's what our millennials believe. Let's not read any further, shall we? God has avenged himself on Israel, and Israel is now God's enemy until today. Wait a minute, look at verse 25. I will also turn my hand against you. See, judgment, judgment. And will smelt away your dross as with lye. That's a crucible right there. It's a crucible, as I've explained to you, as a container that heats up precious metals to remove the impurities. I will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judgments as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Compare the first sentence of verse 21 to the last phrase of verse 26, and you realize there is absolutely no room for Reformed theology in this passage. None. And please, do not say verses 25 and 26 is referring to the church. Seriously? Because it says in verse 24, a logical connective, I will also turn my hand and will... Verse 26, then I will restore your judges, the city. Mm -hmm. In verse 27, Zion will be redeemed. That's during the tribulation, folks. 
What, are the fire, what is the fire going to do to Israel in the tribulation? It's going to bring them to Christ. It's going to fire them to restore. That is drastic. The tribulation is the massive destruction of this planet by signs and wonders. It is basically bringing Israel to the very edge of destruction by the world powers under the Antichrist and Satan. Fleeing to the hills, having nowhere to go. And God restores them, opens their hearts through the fire of the great tribulation. Folks, if God does that in the future, by the way, this is a major passage, while I will never be reformed, okay, that's just a denial of the word of God. If God is going to do this for an apostate Israel then in the book of Isaiah, but in the future completely restore them, because this has never happened yet, and he does that for a wicked Israel, that he calls them a whore city in verse 21. How much more does the fire of testing for his blood-bought, born-again children work to our benefit? If he's going to restore the enemies of Israel, why would he ever cast us off through suffering when we're his precious blood-bought children? Makes no sense. So the fire burns like crazy. Go back. First Peter chapter 1. Burns like crazy. They didn't know how to do much in the Civil War days. The doctors, they were butchers. They used to have a little ditty in the Civil War. Above the knee, dead in three. Do you understand what that means? If you were in a battle in the Civil War and you caught a bullet above the knee, you're dead in three days. It's nice how they made that rhyme. They didn't know a whole lot of anything, so all they could do, they couldn't extract, they didn't know how to deal with infection, antibiotics were non-existent, so all they could do was lop off the leg. Well, that only progressed the infection. I think it was Stonewall Jackson who got shot above the elbow and died from an arm gunshot wound. The infection is what killed them. Some battlefield doctors came along and were starting to realize that if you wanted to stop the bleeding and the hemorrhaging and also at the same time stop some of the infection, you heat up a giant machete and slap it on the wound sideways and burn the daylights, cauterizing it and purifying it at the same time. That little tactic saved a lot of our soldiers in the Civil War from dying from either infection or from hemorrhaging. The Lord is looking at us, and we are wounded daily by sin. And God, in 1 Peter 1.7, is saying, I am putting my machete blade into the fire, and I'm slapping it down on your soul, your mind, and I, it is called the suffering testings of fire, and it's meant to force you and I to repent and to grow. Why do we resist that? Because we're born for suffering, but long for comfort and ease. It's a dichotomy. It's a contradiction of terms. This is the God who loves us. Testing by fire is love. Please write that down on all those blank lines. Testing by fire is love. We're just not going to make it in the Christian life without that. He wants gold. Gold's got to be heated up to purify. He wants spiritual gold. He's got to heat you up. If you want to be pure, he's going to 
hammer you. He's not hammering you if you're not suffering for the faith. And of course, where's God in that picture, right? I've had that in counseling over the years. Well, you talk about suffering, that we're supposed to suffer. I've, I've not suffered for the faith. I've had people say that occasionally to me in the past in counseling. And I'd say, well, then how would you know that you're saved? Because a loving God who loves you is going to test you by fire. See, this is what creates, as we'll see next Sunday night, the rest of the verse. Glory to God. Tested by fire, and you don't give up the faith. You grow under the firing. You don't resent. You don't get mad. You don't quit. You don't pull out. You don't stop reading your Bible when you're suffering for the faith. What do you do? You're purified under it. David Levy, Friends of Israel, theologian, says this, quote, Just as gold must be heated in fire to be refined and purified, so the refining fire of testing purifies our faith. Don't, don't we want pure faith? Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we're after? We were converted, right? We were converted. We repented of sin so that we could be holy in the sight of God. Positionally holy and practically. This is what we want. This is the hunger of the true believer. There's no other road to travel and traverse then if you want to be holy. You've got to be tested by fire. He says, a flame that endure, a faith that endures the flame of suffering is truly genuine. This is so important. So important what he says there. True faith cannot be destroyed by the severest of trials. That's the good news. True faith cannot be destroyed by the severest of trials. Here's the bad news. False, false faith always is destroyed by trials. Something somewhere trips up the fake believer. Somewhere, something in the church or in their lives, and they've said, I have had enough. They may actually physically quit the body of Christ or just simply disengage from the interaction with the word of God inside a local church. Either way, false faith can be destroyed by trials. So trials really do test us to see if we're real in the congregation of believers. When you and I see many that fall away because of hardship, we know they're not real. Albert Barnes, a theologian, had much to say in his commentary on this passage, Tested by Fire. And uh, I'm going to give you some principles next Sunday night from him. I think it's worth, it's worth writing them down. He gives some tremendous principles Concerning tested by fire, I don't want to rush them. He has five principles in his commentary. I want to give him the credit for that, not me. I didn't write it. He did. I'll pass it on to you next Sunday night. Father, there's no such thing as the fires of prosperity. No such thing. No, we would love that in our sin natures. The more prosperous we are, the more we love you. After all, we can put common sense to that false rule, dear Lord. We can say something like this. If you give me more, Lord, I will thank you all my days. Growing money, better job, less trials. I will be so thankful to you, Lord. See, the prosperity will increase thankfulness. It never does that. No matter how much thanks we have in our heart when prosperity knocks on our front doors, dear Lord Jesus. And yes, maybe today some problem is fixed and we're thankful if we see a long string of prosperity and problems solved over time 
we will abandon the faith. We will become used to you giving us good things, and then we'll get mad at you when the good things are turned off. And then we will question you and wonder why you stopped the prosperity. And then we will grovel and whine under our breaths. And we will go from being thankful for a little relief from suffering to whining and graping over the manna in the wilderness. It is our nature, Lord, that makes us so untrustworthy even as your children. Prosperity corrupts us. So, you're slapping us with a heated up knife from the fire and it hurts like the Dickens fire burns but it purifies and it forces us through the tunnel of suffering. And when we come out on the other side into the sunshine of spiritual maturity, we yell with great praise to your great name as we have massive growing assurance that we're truly your children, proven and precious. Proven, more precious than gold. Proven, burned up with fire. May we yield to the agony. We may be crying on the outside, even grieving over the state of the church. You, Lord Jesus, cried over sin. Paul despaired over the condition of the Corinthian church. But yet, you, Jesus, and Paul lived in the realm of joy in their salvation. Yes, we can weep over the hardships that we face while we rejoice that they're from you for our good. You're our only hope in the midst of suffering. Help us not to turn against you. You are water in the desert. Even while you are burning us with trials, you're the sustenance that keeps us going in the midst of suffering. To turn on you is to renounce your provision, your enablement, and your God-directed power towards us to make us into your image by putting us in the crucible of fire. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.